Good morning. <clears throat> I want to give a couple shout outs. Dave and Sarah Hogman are back in town. They've been staying with us at our house from Wednesday, and we've learned what it means to have little boys in our house. We, our kids are all grown. They showed up, and monster trucks are flying off the countertops, and I thought, we're in for it. This is good. Bloody noses and everything. It's good. So welcome back, you guys. They're a huge part of when we started Novation, and for at least the first five years, something like that. So, Also, TJ. TJ on the drums today. He didn't know he was going to be playing drums today. He was back in the sound booth and pinch hit, so I said, when you show up to the yard, you got to be ready to play third, catch, maybe pitch, you never know. So um, I want to say hello to all our online community this morning. You're special to us, and uh, we miss seeing you in person. We look forward to that day. Just know that we love you and uh, care about you and are praying for you as well, and you're just as part of this church community as folks that are able to make it in, in person. So let me pray. Lord, thank you for you. Thank you for the gift of life. And thank you for the gift of eternal life, Jesus. I pray, Lord, this morning that um, those that are experiencing shame, the silent condemning whispers of the enemy, Lord, through the truth of the gospel, I pray you would awaken hearts to how truly extravagant your grace really is, how good you have been to us and will continue to be at your very nature, Lord. I pray, Lord, for us in this room of people that are just beginning their, their journey with you or back walking with you. I pray you would stir something fresh in them. And Lord, we pray that you would not let any of us become apathetic in our relationship with you. Lord, stir us up. The power of grace, the power of the Holy Spirit in each of us. We give to you our burdens. We give to you our worries. We give to you our mess. And we thank you that you are the one that's working all things for our good. So teach today, Holy Spirit, through me, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One more shout out, too. I think Carrie's gunning for my job. Anybody, anybody feel that? I was getting a little nervous. Like, I was, it was like, okay. I know I stink, and I'm kidding. Um, how many come from... Uh, a family, you're in your family where you're the oldest. Lift your hand. You're the oldest in your family. How many are middle children? Give me my middle children. How many only or youngest children? Jeez, most of us. So we're all a bunch of spoiled people in this room, aren't we? <laughs> I know how that works. <laughs> the studies show that that oldest children tend to be more organized and rule followers and bossy. Amen to that. Middle children tend to be the peacemakers. They <laughs> yeah, go ahead. They adjust well to their environment, adapt easy. Youngest and only children tend to be free-spirited. 
Maybe the life of the party sometimes, selfish, spoiled. I'm a youngest child, youngest of four, so reading my own mail there. When I was a, a little boy, I was probably eight years old, I got really mad at my family. I don't remember why. I, I was, my mom wouldn't let me do something, and then everybody ganged up on the youngest. You know how that happens, right? And so in my little eight-year-old mind, I said, you know what? Forget this. I'm running away. And so it's the hobo life for me or not for a bust, man. And so I literally took my pillowcase, snuck down and put food in, in my clothes and cans of soup and all this stuff, and then just threw it over. And I, I looked and I left, and I got about 10 blocks away from our house to the park that was near our house. And the thought hit me, what am I going to do? Where am I going to sleep tonight? And all of a sudden, I got really scared, and I turned around, and I bolted back to our house, ran back. And no one even knew I had been gone. I was gone for about 20 minutes anyway. I ran away from home for 20 minutes. That's kind of the bottom line. And I remember taking my pillowcase, and I threw it in my closet, and I went and gave my mom a big hug <laughs> and told her I was sorry for being a pain in her rear that night. This morning, we're going to look at a story about a family, two sons and a father. We're in a, a series right now in the book of Luke where we're, we're looking at the life of Jesus, that he brought the kingdom. It's, we've called this series Kingdom Come. And we're, we're, what did Jesus teach? What did he do? And then ultimately, Luke crescendos with Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection, his triumph over the works of the devil, over death, and over sin. And that's what he did for us in his life, death, and resurrection. And so how do we follow him? He's, he's the Lord. He's the one that we're, we're his disciples. So I want to read out of Luke chapter 15. And it says in the first, three, first two verses that now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious leaders, began to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So then Jesus tells a little parable about a lost sheep, a shepherd and a lost sheep. He tells a par parable about a lost coin. This lady had a valuable coin, and she lost it and found it. The joy that both the shepherd and the lady had when they found that was lost. Then in pick it up in verse 11. And he said... A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country. And he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country. And he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And when he, when he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? 
but I'm dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf, kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found and they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. When he came and he approached the house, he heard music and dancing, and he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring uh, what these things could be. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, look, for so many years I have been serving you, I have never neglected a command of yours, and yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you've always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live, and was lost, and has been found. I find it interesting how quickly the older brother forgot that he was given his inheritance too, when the younger brother did that. Keep that in mind. Today we're going to talk about God's extravagant grace. That's a picture that Jesus wanted us in his audience to understand how extravagant his grace was really is. Grace, by definition, is unmerited favor and forgiveness. You cannot earn it. It's, it's not just getting, you know, it's getting more than you deserve, tr truly. And it's funny to me how so many of us were offended by grace. How many religious people are offended at grace when God shows grace to somebody? When we, when we read something like this, Jesus' audience was the religious leaders, the Pharisees. He wanted, they were grumbling that he eats with sinners, that he welcomes sinners. And so he wanted them to really have a change of mind about what grace really was and what God was like. The word extravagant means going beyond what is deserved or justified. The word prodigal, when we talk about the prodigal son, prodigal means reckless. He was reckless with his inheritance. He went and spent everything that he had. So what does Jesus want us to learn from this story? I'm going to answer that in a couple, couple simple points. The first thing Jesus wants, he wants to change my concept of God. This story is about changing our understanding about 
the character and nature, goodness of God. That's at the forefront in his, the audience that he wanted to hear and for us today. Our concept of God has been shaped by our experiences and our cultural influences. The number one thing that, that, has, that shapes and impresses us when we're, especially when we're younger, about how we view God is our earthly father. Our earthly fathers play a huge role in understanding what God the Father is like. So all our dads and grandpas in this room, you are shaping what people's view of God, is, your kids' view of God is like. That's, that's quite the responsibility when you begin to think about that. So whether you, you had an absentee father, a bad father, a good father. I was blessed. My dad passed away last Thanksgiving, and people told me over and over, man, your dad was the bomb. Like, I can't believe how, how good of a man he was and how much uh, he impressed on other, his grandkids and his kids. And I, I am blessed in that. And I've never struggled with seeing God the Father as good because I think I had a good father figure. That's not true of everybody watching or in this room. So you have to let Jesus tell you what his father is like. You have to let Jesus show you what God is truly like. TV doesn't help. Dads on TV are always a bunch of buffoons or, you know, angry or jerks or whatever, you know, and, and that, that influences culture to think that's what a father is like. Religious ideas about what the father is like. We've come up with some crazy ideas that God's just a judge in the sky waiting to bring the hammer down. Nothing could be farther from the truth. And where I get that is from the Lord Jesus himself. He said, when you've seen me, you've seen what the Father is like. He's in perfect relationship with his Father. And so if you want to know what the Father's like, you look at, at, at the Lord Jesus and you see what the Father is like. And Jesus is describing God in a way that was new to his audience. And maybe you, maybe you watching, this idea that God is this lovesick father wanting his lost children you know, to come home like the father in this story. Jesus portrays God as a tender father, as a compassionate father. He runs and he kisses him and he falls on his neck and embraces him. Jesus wants us to understand that, that God is not distant and out there, but he's ever-present and with us and created us for relationship. The Father, it was his idea to create us, to create humanity, to enjoy relationship together. So it leads me to my second point. Jesus wants us to change how I relate to God. We were just talking this morning about, I was talking with somebody and they were sharing with me, how, how would you, how, what verses would you minister to somebody? They're, they're sick and, and, and they're on their, their deathbed, so to speak, with cancer. And that this person's afraid that because they've sinned since they become a Christian, that how can they have forgiveness? And it's like, if we relate to God through to our, our little lists of, I was good, I was bad. I was good, I was bad. And does it outweigh one another? That's not how Jesus wants us to relate to God. So important. The religious leaders that Jesus was really speaking to here related to God 
in their little framework that they had created out of, out of the law and the commands. And they had put it in a box. Their relationship was in a box. And if you weren't in that box or didn't see it the way they did, then you're out. Jesus is saying, you guys don't get this. You're the ones that need to have it. the lights go on for you here. But I also believe Jesus wants us to see you ourselves in this story. That there's a little bit of the younger brother and a little bit of the older brother in us all at times. So we've got two sons, the younger and the older. So we see that we, Jesus is a compare and contrast of how these guys related to their father. We got two perspectives, self-centered and self-righteous. That's what Jesus is, is getting at here. And I think understanding that is a, is a pathway to truly self-discovery and understanding how God sees you and how we should see God. Think about the self-centeredness of the, the prodigal, the younger, the audacity to, to ask his father, can I have my inheritance now? You know what that told his father? is I wish you were dead. That's basically what he said. I wish you were dead so I could have my money. And then you have, and then he went and spent it all, right? He went and spent everything that he had, pursuing a life of independence from his father. The self-righteousness, self-righteousness is believing that you're more righteous than everybody else. It's believing that's, that, that you can manipulate God by your behavior, and that I'm, I'm in right standing with God because I do what's right. If I'm good, I'm right. So self-centered people are trying to control life by being their own boss. Self-righteous people are trying to control life by rules and behavior. Now, before you go down the road of, is Scott saying that we shouldn't obey or that I can do what I want or any of that? No. Who wants, nobody wants that. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about how do I relate to God? Can, do I feel freedom to come into God's presence and confidence through prayer and relationship? Or do I always have to come with this little bit of shame? He knows what I did. I'm, he's mad at me. And I think God wants to remove that. I think that's Jesus' whole point for anyone that has ears to hear. And then there's two approaches to relate to God. There was life. There was reckless and there was the religious sort of behavior. Reckless is, reckless people, prodigal, we don't care. He spent everything. He, it's my life. I'll do with it what I want. How many times do you read stories about, like, athletes who get millions and millions of dollars, but they're broke by the end of their career? That's prodigal living. Spend everything. You know, rock stars, Actors and actresses, they go broke, but they had millions and millions. They thought that the money would, would never run out, but they spent it all. And it's tragic to watch some of these things happen in people's life. The religious way of approaching life is, God, if I, if I obey the rules, then you owe me. And religious people tend to think, you know, when life doesn't go the way they wanted it to go, they get mad at God. And they say things like, God, but I served you. I obeyed you. You owe me. Both of these are, are wrong approaches. And there's one mistake that both of them made. Neither one of them wanted their father. 
They both wanted something from him. I think it's interesting that religious and moral people can be avoiding Jesus just as much as uh, prodigals or people that are living recklessly and not even realize they're avoiding Jesus because they're banking on their own goodness, their own behavior to, to, to walk with God. So if I've been good enough and there's no assurance, there's no assurance in that kind of relationship because how do you know how good is good enough, right? They were both distant. The younger was distant from his father out of rebellion, the older out of his religiosity. I want to ask you a question. This is a very important question to kind of see where, you know, self-examine, I guess, yourself, so to speak. But do you believe that a morally good person that, that doesn't follow Jesus, doesn't put their hope in Jesus is just as lost as someone who's living a reckless life outside of Jesus as well. We tend to not see that in there, but both are missing the point. Jesus is the point of life. He is the author of life. He's the creator, redeemer, and sustainer. So I think breaking the rules, so to speak, and that's what these religious leaders were all about, breaking the rules and trying to be right by the rules, are equally wrong ways to relate to God. God wants to have a relationship with us, not a system of do's and don'ts. That's why the gospel shows us a new way of relating. God's good. 2 Corinthians 5 says that God was in Christ, and whenever Paul uses the, the term God, he means as the Father in mind. God the Father was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them or their sins. And that's the message. Be reconciled to God. Jesus did it all. He did everything in his life, death, and resurrection. Now the message is live in that. Participate in it. Receive the the good news and believe. And then I really believe Jesus is trying to change my view of grace, change my view of grace. There's a difference between mercy and grace. Mercy is treating someone better than they deserve. Grace is giving some, someone something they don't deserve. Grace goes beyond mercy. Mercy opens the door. Grace goes beyond. How many have read or seen the movie Les Miserables? You need to Read that book. It's a very redemptive story. Um, Les Miserables, I prefer the one from the late 90s with Liam Neeson because it's not a musical. And uh, <laughs> Amen, anybody? We went into, uh, what was the one about Barnum and Bailey? The Greatest Showman. I didn't realize it was a musical. And we, we sat down and they started doing the thing and the big drums. And I was like, no. But by the end, I was singing along. This is a great movie, great story. I mean, I have to admit that. But when we saw Les Miserables, the musical, I cried. I was so bored. But the, anyway, I digress. So if you've never read the book or don't know the story, Jean Valjean is the star. And Jean Valjean, early in the story, he's like a drifter and a thief. And one night he knocks on the door of this priest's house, in his 
his servant helpers. And they eat a meal with him, give him a place to sleep. And in the middle of the night, he, he wakes up and he goes and he steals the silver, valuable silver spoons and he puts them in his little pack. And the priest wakes up, he's in his little nightgown, and uh, he sees him and he pops him over the head and knocks the priest out and he leaves. The next morning, the police show up with Jean Valjean and his little sack with the spoons, and they say, is this the man that robbed you? And the priest comes up to Jean Valjean. He says, I'm very angry with you. You forgot the candlesticks. And he puts the candlesticks in his pack. And then he says, you know, I've, sa I've saved your soul. Go, go live right. The point in that is he, he showed mercy by, by not calling the cops, but he showed grace by giving him what he didn't deserve. He didn't, you know, he, he could have been arrested and all of that, but he did both there. That's the picture of grace. Now, the prodigal son, he knew what was waiting for him. He knew what was waiting for him. There's, in that time, the biblical culture for the, for the Jewish people, there was a ceremony called the Kazaza ceremony. And the Kazaza ceremony was where somebody does what the prodigal son did. If you dishonor your family you, and your dad, you dishonor the community. And so they would take a clay pot and smash it at your feet, the person that they're dis disowning. They would smash it at their feet and pieces would go everywhere and they would shame them and, and say, you have broken your dad's heart. You have broken your family's heart. You have broken life with this community. You're gone. You're cut off. And they would cut them off from the community. That was the display of what would happen there. So the father, and whenever that ceremony would happen, dad, the father would stay inside while the community handled the, the difficulty, the uh, the clay pot stuff. So the father knew that that was a possibility. People in the community knew that his son had done what he did. So he's going to be the first one to his son. That's why he ran to him. He didn't wait for him to come to the front porch and give his little speech. He ran to him. And in that, he committed several cultural faux pas. He is a middle-aged man didn't run. And he would have pulled up his, his robe and exposed his legs, which was a taboo. And he didn't care. He was going to be the first to embrace his son. He was going to be the first to show that you are welcome. It's important that we realize that the religious leaders were always wanting to cut off sinners and tax collectors and so forth. And who did Jesus eat with? Who did he hang with? Those people, right? He was not a, he's not, wasn't ashamed of that. Now, maybe somebody watching or somebody in this room, maybe you've experienced that you're not welcome. We don't want your kind here. We know what you did. Fill in the blank. You're worthless. I can make you a promise. God would never, will never treat you like that. God will never tell you that you're not welcome. And here's the other thing. Jesus understands this. He was rejected at every level by people. He was, he was Isaiah 53, 8, prophecy about Jesus says that he was cut off from the people. Not by his father. 
Jesus never separated from his Father. But we reject him. The people reject him. We have to see ourselves in these stories and what we read. And, and, and humanity rejected Jesus. He felt that rejection. He felt it on the cross. He understands that. So my, my hope for everybody that has felt that you're not welcome or you don't matter, God the Father says, here's, here's what I'm like. I'm like this father in this, in this story. So I gotta, uh, I'm going to finish with a question. I want you to contemplate this. Is God's extravagant grace amazing to you? Is it, maybe you've been walking with Jesus for a long time. Is it still blow your mind when you think about how much he loves you and what he did for you? And maybe today you're not even sure. When you began to contemplate what Jesus did for you and how much God loves you and what he extravagantly did for us in his life, death, and resurrection, and the Father giving his Son, like this perfect relationship between the Father and Son in eternity past, came up with a plan to redeem us. It's extravagant in the, in the story, right? Extravagant grace was he put a robe on him. He put a ring on his finger. He um, killed the fattened calf. They celebrated. They had a feast. Like he just poured out this extravagant grace upon him. Do you know what Ephesians 1 says about you? If you don't, write this down or go open your Bible to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, you want to talk about extravagant grace by God? Says that we have been blessed in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing that's in Christ. Now, he didn't say a few. Every spiritual blessing that's in Christ. Now, you know what that means? That means everything that is Jesus's is yours, spiritually speaking. He brought us in to the family. He brought us into his relationship with his father. We're in it. That blows me away. How much love does God the father have for the son and the son for the father? And we have been made co-heirs with Christ, joint heirs. It's amazing. That's extravagant grace to contemplate, to live in. I think understanding this there's there's a the only prerequisite so to speak is to come to our senses like he did and say wow i don't want to live apart from god he's already he's he's given me all this and to realize the welcome that he has for us some of you have been thought all your life or taught all your life that god is just mad at you and you got to get it right before you can be right with God, and that's not true. He'll change you. If you genuinely come to Jesus and become his follower and put into practice his teachings, you'll change. That's being his disciple. But the welcome is always there. So I think it's a call for two things. There's a call for repentance, and repentance is a change of mind. Change your mind about God. Come into agreement with Jesus about who he is and about who he says you are. And then it calls for rejoicing. 
we have so much to be thankful for and to rejoice and to ask the Holy Spirit to awaken us to see what he knows about us, what he knows about who we are in Christ. Our messiness, our brokenness doesn't have to get the last word. That's, that's the huge part of this story is our failures don't have to get the last word. I want to pray. I thought about getting a clay pot and throwing it at the foot of the cross. Then I thought my wife wouldn't appreciate that a whole lot in, the, in here, the director of operations. But picture that in your mind. A clay, that ceremony. Jesus was cut off so that we could come home and know that we're welcome. Will you stand with me? Lord, awaken our hearts and minds as we, as we sing about your goodness again. Awaken our minds, awaken our hearts to the love of the Father through you, Lord Jesus. I pray.